Greetings, welcome to Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King, our exposition of the book of Acts. We're taking a look at the actions of the apostles, which indeed it could be called the actions of the Holy Spirit. So what we're seeing is we're seeing God at work building the church of Jesus Christ. And this is indeed the promise of Jesus, that he would build his church, that the disciples would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we are following the apostle Paul, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 28 today as we're taking a close look at how God is working through him. And today we have an interesting title for the sermon. It is called Never Not Working. Never Not Working. You may have seen a recent ad campaign for shampoo in which one character is telling the other about how the shampoo is so great. It continually works. Uh, once you have applied it, once you've used it, it is always working. And, and the phrase is never not working. And this character shows up in this other character's life in uh, all sorts of places, whether he's at the driving range, whether he is at uh, uh, he is actually the dentist that, that works on him and he is always running into him and he is always on the job and always working to explain how this is never not working. Well, this is the Lord. He is never not working. He is always pushing forth his plans. He's always working in and through his people to accomplish his will on the earth. And this is the beautiful thing about what we see about the book of Acts is we see this in action and we see indeed how he is never not working. Well, we've followed Paul on his adventure now uh, all the way across the sea. And as we take a closer look at where he's been, we've seen that he has been pushed past in chapter 27, uh, come all the way from Caesarea Maritima on the right hand side of the map in the uh, promised land of Israel on the coast there. And they've gone around Cyprus. They've gone and they've put in Amira, and where they change ships. And they changed to a more seagoing vessel. And uh, then they put in and came across Crete and decided not to stay in Fair Havens for the winter, but to push on toward Phoenix, which is right in the middle of the map that you see there. And of course, they missed it and pushed out across sea for over two weeks, uh, they finally come to land on the island of Malta. And if you notice there on the map, if they had not hit Malta, they would have been long gone into the open sea without really any hope of survival. So this is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 28. And we're going to find that uh, indeed they have made landfall. And last time we talked about the shipwreck that they experienced, but all 276 passengers on that ship were saved, uh, largely because of the intervention of Paul to kind of take over, to lead, to, uh, to lead them in what God was doing to bring Paul to Rome safely. Well, he's not there yet. We find him on the island of Malta in Acts chapter 28. So that's where we're going to take a look at this today, and we're going to uh, examine the text. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 16. After we were brought safely through, that is the shipwreck, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, 
No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when, he had taken, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Putioli, or Putioloi, where we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Well, let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Father God, we pray this day that you would use this word in us and through us to do many mighty things as we've seen happen in the book of Acts, that many great things were done and many signs and wonders, but most importantly, lives were changed as you intercepted the lives of many people with the gospel and saved them and took them from darkness into light, from death to life. And Lord, it is our sincere prayer this day that you would accomplish all your will in those who hear the word of God today. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, an exciting thing, and the excitement continues that they had survived the shipwreck, every single hand on board, made it to the shore, and once they get there, then the great grace of God brought them into kind natives, brought them into the hands of very kind natives on the island. Now, the island of Malta to this very day has on the northeast corner of it, which is where we believe it is likely that they ran the ship aground and where they met people, they have a bay there called St. Paul's Bay. And there's also an island at the edge of the bay called St. Paul's Island. Now, the island itself is less than 100 square miles. It's part of an archipelago in that area off the southern part of Sicily. But as we saw from the map, that if they had indeed missed uh, the island of Malta, it was very unlikely that they were going to run aground on any of the very, very small islands beyond it. And so it was a great fortune that God drove them to this island to meet the people here. In the kindness of God, they didn't miss it. In the kindness of God, they were handed along and handed over to what we would best call kind natives. Now, 
Let's think about this a minute. After 14 days of this adventure on the sea, that they were all coming out of the water, so they were wet. We were told it was raining, and this was the time of year when it could be very cold. They were obviously hungry, having only eaten once in the last 14 days. They were in need of shelter and food and clothes and rest from the great stress that they had been under for the previous two weeks at sea. And God had mercy and provided this for them. He didn't deliver them into the wilderness. He didn't deliver them among enemies, but these very hospitable people that they meet on the island of Malta. Even the local leadership, a wealthy landowner, uh, shows hospitality to the group and, and the kindness continues through their entire three-month stay and including even provisions when they decide to finally leave three months later when the seas are now they, uh, passable and possible for them to make safe voyage uh, past Sicily and up into Italy. And so the people equip them for their trip. And this just shows us very simply, God is very good, and God reveals a great deal through these kind natives. Now, it's also very interesting that a key part of this story is, of course, a snake bite. If we look at verses 3 through 6 here, we find that Paul is indeed not idle. There is a fire to be made, and what does Paul do? Paul gets firewood. He's not above this. He's not too old for this. He's not too important for this. He is gathering wood with the others in order that they can make a fire and be, uh, be warmed. While he's gathering wood, uh, a viper is kind of revived by the fire. Now, that time of year in the cold, uh, these snakes can become very slow moving, but once warmed up or once inspired by something like the heat of flame, it gets motivated and it strikes Paul. Now, some have looked at this passage and proposed, hey, this can't be right because vipers, when they attack, they don't hold on. They strike, they inject the venom instantaneously, then they withdraw. But as many people have experienced snake bite, occasionally the fangs get stuck in the victim or stuck on the clothing, and the snake simply hangs there. But this is a, not like Paul purposefully picked this thing up and played with it. In fact, he pays no mind to it. If you notice in the narrative, after it strikes him, uh, he just kind of shakes it off and shakes it into the fire. But what occurs here is an obvious miracle. The natives knew their snakes. They knew a venomous snake when they saw it. They saw it strike Paul and they, they just simply waited for his reaction to see what would happen to him. Oh, he's going to swell up. He's eventually going to die. But God obviously protected him from the bite. And this is interesting because there's absolutely no premeditation of this on the part of Paul. Paul's not been preaching the gospel yet. He's simply gathering firewood. And he's not thinking, gee, what we really need to top off this worship service is a miracle here. Well, they're not having a worship service, except he is worshiping God in all that he does. And this snake bites him, he shakes it off, but nevertheless, the others see this and perceive a miracle. And they go from thinking, oh, this guy, look, he survived the sea, but justice isn't done with him yet. It's obviously got him now by this viper bite. This must be some kind of rascal. But when it doesn't take effect, they change their mind and say, well, 
This must be some kind of God that he has survived the viper's venom. Jesus foretold that these kind of things would accompany the the apostles as signs and wonders in spreading the gospel. We see almost all these things happen in the book of Acts. Look what it says in Mark here, chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. He said, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So here you see Paul. Paul essentially picks up the serpent. It doesn't affect him. And this is one of the great accompanying miracles that happens. But through this, I want to see uh, revealed to you the fact that the gospel is so desperately needed here. It's illustrated in the reaction of the people to Paul. Look at their superstition in verse 4 here. They saw the creature hanging from his hand. They're like, this is obviously a murderer because he escaped the sea. Now the viper has gotten him. This is an error in their thinking. This is a superstition that they had that many people have. This this unbiblical view of justice, that somehow justice works this way, that you know what goes around comes around. And some people call it karma, that you've done a bad thing, it's going to come back on you somehow. But the Bible has a more mature, more realistic, more consistent with reality view of justice. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, where the author of Ecclesiastes bemoans the fact that justice doesn't work this way. He says, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. See, we know good people and bad people alike uh, and those terms we know from the Bible are relative, but good and bad alike receive snake bites. It happens to the good, to the evil, and it goes on to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. And this is just the fact of life, and it's observably obvious. There is no equity of circumstance in the world. Some are wicked, but leave, live easy lives full of abundance. Some are better people, but they live lives of great difficulty. And as the author of Ecclesiastes says here in verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same events happens to all. And so this we see in the world, this is a great difficulty for us to understand. Why is it that some, that, you know, the, the evil seem to get away with it all their lives, while the righteous seem swallowed up in difficulty all of their lives? It is a great difficulty. Only the biblical worldview, only the Bible has a decent answer for this kind of thing. And it says here, very importantly, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, the Bible teaches that despite all inequity in life, justice does not need to happen in this life. Any notion of a just God requires that there be a reckoning after this life, because so obviously there's an inequity of justice during this life. But after this life, we see that indeed 
if this is the case, there can be a judgment and all things can be rectified. All things brought before God, who is the perfect perceiver of the hearts and the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He sees the hearts of men. He even knows why they did what they did. And he will repay all those who deserve it. So if you say that you believe in God, but you say there's no afterlife and there's no final judgment, then you believe in a God that's profoundly unjust. You believe in a God that's okay with the order of things we see in the world in which some people just seem to get away with bad living all their lives and some people seem to have a great difficulty while they themselves are what we would call good people. There's more error that follows this in these people. Since he survives the bite, then all of a sudden they say, oh, well, he must be a god because, you know, he, he survived this thing. And there is more error than saying this is obviously a god because he survived. This is a man-centered thinking. Christians would think seeing this happen to somebody, obviously God is telling me something with this sign, or God has spared this man for some reason. God has some intention in what he is doing. We would not see this miracle as something inherent in the one that the miracle has occurred to, but we would see this miracle as an act of God that he has done for this person for some kind of a purpose. How lost they are that their only observations and their only reasoning to discern the truth comes up so far short. They have no standard for believing the way they believe these poor people on this island. They need the revelation of God, the truth of Jesus Christ, and they're about to get it. A snake bite can tell a lot, but right after this, there is a great healing. Let's take a look at those verses. Uh, we find, first of all, that the people were particularly hospitable. And, and among them, particularly hospitable, was this man Publius, or Publius. He was a wealthy landowner, and he entertained them, it says, for three days. Did he entertain all 276? Or did he entertain uh, just the leadership and Paul and some other choice people? I don't know. I'd have to think it'd be all of them because Paul, after all, in the grand scheme of things in this group of people, is a mere prisoner. And we find out that this man's father is sick. Paul heals him. Now, this was obviously some kind of a dysentery. And there's a disease uh, specific to the island of Malta, a disease they get from their goats, a bacterial infection. It's similar to dysentery that people have a great difficulty recovering from. It comes upon them again and again periodically. They can be fine for a while, but then they can get sick with it again. It could go on for months or years. And dehydration was the greatest danger in this particular kind of disease, just like dysentery. So Paul heals him, and word gets around, as it does, <laughs> as it does many times when there's a spectacular healing like this, and many others come to see what is going on. Now, nowhere in the gospel, Gospels or in the book of Acts is healing done without purpose. It always supports the message of the gospel. And here as well, 
we assume, though it's not explicitly stated, we assume according to his character, according to the pattern that is laid out for us in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, we assume that Paul preaches the gospel to accompany these signs. And the result is clearly that some believed. And while it doesn't explicitly state that some believed, look at the actions that they took. In verse 10, it says they honored them greatly. And when we, they were about to set sail, they provided generously for their journey. In all, the Paul and the others had spent three whole months here equipping these people, getting to know these people, teaching them the gospel, being ministered to by them, resting from the, their weary journey, which could take uh, indeed weeks or months to recover from the kind of ordeal that they had experienced. But I want to look at this for a moment from the perspective of the islanders. They were people that had beliefs, they had religious beliefs of various kinds. They were obviously, as we saw from the Revelation there, superstitious. These were people in desperate need of the truth of God, the truth that sets free, the truth that gives a hope and understanding and a purpose to life and eternal life itself. Paul was not the only one rescued. These people, the Maltese, the natives, were delivered from their superstitious religions that led them to death. Now they were being led to life by the gospel. In hindsight, it's plain for us to see that light had shone on their island that day. And no doubt many people told the story for generations to come after that, that Yes, the Paul the Apostle came in. That's why we're Christians. And many are here that, that remember that day or we pass it down, we teach it to our children because all have passed that do not remember that day. Years later, centuries later, eternal life came to many on that day and not just to them, but future generations of their children that would trust the name of Jesus, the same name that their parents had trusted one man's shipwreck became the salvation of many. Paul brought them some physical healing, but more importantly, he brought them spiritual healing. He brought them better life. More importantly, he brought them eternal life, but he couldn't stay. By God's grace, he was able to stay the winter, the three months there, but that goes very fast when there's so much to learn about God's word. So finally they had to depart. And so there's a, a great departure that happens, and no doubt this was a sad time as they'd gotten to know these people for so long. Look at verses 10 and 11 here. Uh, when we're about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so they set sail. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria. So equipped by their new friends, they get on this ship that had been wintering at Malta, and we hear that it is uh, it has the twin gods as a figurehead. A figurehead was the front part of the ship, raising up off the bow, usually from the main beams, and they would carve something ornate, something spectacular in the fronts of these ships. And this one had carved in it uh, the twin gods. They are referring to Castor and Pollux. 
And according to myth, they were the sons of Zeus and Leda, and they were the two that watched over the seamen, the people at sea and ships. And so how appropriate that they get on another Alexandrian ship, but this one has the mythological protection of the twin gods. Well, we see that God had a reason for them to come to Malta, and now it's expected they will go safely to Rome, and indeed they do. Their first step was their first stop was Syracuse in Sicily, where they stayed for three days. This is a very famous city. It is likened to Athens uh, in its fame, in its diversity, in its culture. And so this is a great and famous place. They're able to stay at for three days. And then on to Italy. They stopped first at Regium, which is at the very tip of the boot, and then they made very good time up the coast to a place called Patialoi, uh, Patialoi, <laughs> uh, which we've shortened here in the translation, but Patialoi, and more grace comes on the way. As we see in verse 14, they met brothers there, Patialoi, believers, and they were invited to stay there with them seven days. And as we spoke of in prior sermons, that Paul was really under the charge of a single centurion. There were other prisoners with them. This centurion was at liberty to travel as he saw fit. And if he wanted to stay there seven days and Paul could convince him to do so, he could stay there seven days without any kind of penalty or concern. Nevertheless, uh, they stay there. They minister to the people. They are ministered to by the people. And then from there, it's about 250 miles by land to Rome. Well, the people there at Regium, while they were staying there, or at Patialoi, rather, while they were staying there, they must have messaged the people in Rome because the people in Rome come out to meet them. As we see in verse 15, uh, when the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apreus and three taverns to meet us. So they come almost half the way to meet Paul on the road and travel with him the last few days. And notice Paul's reaction. He rejoiced because at long last he saw the faces that he had longed to see. I want to take you to the book of Romans just so you really understand how important this moment is that he finally sees the faces of some of those from Rome whom he had written to, whom he had heard of, and he was acquainted with some of the people at Rome. We don't know if maybe those were some of the ones that met him or not, but read the the intro to the book of Romans here, and we'll try to get a sense of this. He says, first, in writing to the Romans, a couple years prior, he had written this, and that'll become very clear as we read on. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also 
who are in Rome. And the beautiful irony of this is he mentions I'm, obliga- I'm obligated to both Greeks and barbarians. Well, most of the Romans were Greeks and the island of Malta they would consider barbarians because from the Roman point of view, you know, the Roman citizens and the Greek-speaking world and all that, you had basically the Greek-speaking people and then the rest were all barbarians, uh, including Jews. They considered everyone non-Greek to be basically barbarians. But here we have in the letter of Rome, written a couple years before Paul finally makes it there, he expresses his great desire to meet them, to be there, to impart a spiritual gift to them. Now look in uh, chapter 15, he mentions it near the close of his letter to them. He says, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. See, we know that's he's speaking of his journey that he made to Jerusalem back in chapters 20 and 21, as he was moving toward Jerusalem and finally arriving there with this aid that he had for the believers there. What it must have been like on that day on the way to Rome, when he looked into the faces of those he longed to see, and then finally arrived at Rome. What a joy it is. God had put it in his heart that he must visit Rome. God had put the passion in him to go there and to meet those people and to minister to them. He was; They were on his heart. He was praying for them daily, and God fulfills it and brings him to it. And what great joy he must have had in finally seeing them. Well, according to verse 16, when they arrived at Rome, Paul is essentially under house arrest with a guard to watch him. And God has been brought to Rome as promised. And this is the great arrival that we see. What a blessing that Paul got to minister to and be ministered to the believers at Puteoloi for seven days, and then got to travel the final days of his journey with some of the Roman believers that he longed to see. This is grace upon grace on this great voyage of his, and there are many lessons for us to learn along the way. Many lessons for us to learn along the way. First of all, we want to learn this. God is never not working. God is never not working. And then by implication, see, everywhere Paul went, God is working. There are believers there to meet, or there are people there to preach the gospel to. And he shows up on an island, and very first thing, while he's just going about the task of daily living, of survival there, God does a miracle and gets the people's attention and provides opportunity for great ministry there. God is never not working. And as such, then the implication is because he is working through believers on the earth, the believer, the Christian, is never not working. Now, this is important. This is where our theology, as many say, grows legs. In other words, this is where our theology meets the road. If you don't understand that God is Lord of all, then you may not understand that the journey we are on is as important as the destination. The Lord is never not working, and so we are to be never 
not working. You are surrounded by people wherever you are. You are surrounded by people that do not believe. They are steeped in superstition. They may claim to be of the scientific age. They may claim to have no religious beliefs. But I assure you, when you begin to examine what they really do believe, you'll find that they are steeped in superstition. And they can be profoundly kind and generous and wonderful as the Maltese people were. But they can still be lost. They do not have this hope that you have, and they will perish in eternal flames, having rejected the revelation of God in all that has been made. They need the word of God in order to believe, and you, Christian, have that word of God, and you must make it known because you are to be never not working. You are to be proclaiming the truth to all around you, for they all need it. No matter how friendly they are, no matter how uh, hospitable they can be, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved. So let's be careful not to think that someday I'll get busy with the gospel when I finish up my degree or when I get my projects done, or when I get my house in order. Someday I'll, uh, I'll get busy about the gospel work when things are a little easier, maybe when the kids are grown, maybe when the kids are out of the house. Gee, maybe when the, the grandkids get established. You know, we put it off and we put it off, and yet today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that those around us need to hear the gospel truth. Now listen to the encouragements of Paul, of all people, the things that he had to say with regard to this kind of thing, how we ought to live our lives. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when speaking to the church there about their worship style, he said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Colossians, he writes a letter to them and he says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And look at the warning that he gives Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4, the, the last letter we have of Paul, the latest letter we have of his, a letter in which he reveals that this is his second imprisonment in Rome and he doesn't expect to survive it. There, he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. In other words, he comes to Malta. He doesn't get involved in their politics and social concerns and things of that nature. He is a soldier of God and he preaches the gospel to them and many believe. And then when he meets the people in Puteoli, he doesn't try to get involved in their lives and, and make some kind of a movement or something for them. No, it's about the gospel. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. They need ministered to with the gospel of truth. They need help in understanding things. They might need correction in their understanding of things. He ministers to people as he goes, and his priorities are the work of God. And this is must be the same for believers. We must be about the work of God first. And yes, there's many things we can be involved in in our lives. And we can be involved with the kids' sports teams, and we can be involved with the PTA, and we can be involved in the things in our community. But in all those things, we must put the gospel first. We must first proclaim the hope of eternal life. Whatever else we do for people is less than teaching them the truth about eternal life in Jesus Christ. So that's our first lesson, that, that 
God is never not working, and we must never uh, we must never be found not working. This was the encouragement of Jesus as he told parables about the last days that the faithful servant is the one that when the master returns is found working. And he was speaking of his own return, his own return, which could be literally any day, his own return, which is what we call imminent. That means nothing else needs to happen, but the clouds roll back like a scroll and he shows up. This is powerfully important for us to understand that we are to be found as the faithful ones who are going about the task that the master left for them. So our second lesson is very simply this, and it's very related to it, as you can understand. God does what he says he will do. He told Paul, he put it in Paul's heart to go to Rome. We saw it in his letter. We saw it in the book of Acts. And earlier in the book of Acts, when he decided he set his heart on going there after he went to Jerusalem that last time. And Paul then, and then God then affirmed that to Paul, spoke to him actually, and said, yes, you're going to go to Rome. Yes, you're going to testify before Caesar. And despite the, the mismanagement of justice that took place, despite the shipwreck, despite these challenges, God brought him to Rome. And when God reveals a destination, we don't know what the road might look like, but we know the destination is a certainty. And he has promised to his people that they will be molded to the image of Christ, that they will grow in their Christ-likeness, that they will grow in their character, that they will grow in their power and in the truth when we are faithfully follow the, the truth of the gospel when we put our trust in him and allow him to have his way with us, there is a definite destination that he brings us toward. And finally, he, he brings us to perfection in Christ when either the Lord returns or we go to meet him at our passing. These are certainties that he will provide to you as, as you are one of those who endure to the end. He has promised us that he would be faithful to bless and accomplish the giving of his word and save people through his word and save people through the ministry of his church if we will but do the legwork. And he will do it. Of this you can be assured because he does what he says he will do. He is never sleeping. He is never not working in you. He is never not working through you. And so this is our encouragement that we can, in faith, grab hold of the truth of the gospel and whatever our feeble tongues might say and however stumbling kind of ways we might have to do it, that we can proclaim this truth. If it is as simple as handing a Bible to somebody and saying, I believe this, do you believe this? Let me read you something out of this. You know, it can be that simple that he will work through the simplest effort of his people and he will bless it and he will bring some to faith and he will grow them in their faith and he will bless the preaching of his word. These are the promises we have and God absolutely will do all that he says he will do. Let's thank him for that great truth as we close here together. Father God, we thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your servant Paul and all that you accomplished through him. 
And Lord, we thank you for the revelation of the fact that you are always working, that you are constantly providing the needs for your people and the opportunities for them to to bring eternal life to many. Lord, I pray this day that we indeed will take to heart these messages, that we, Lord, will glorify you by, by boldly proclaiming it. Lord, help us to open our mouths, remove the obstacles from our lives, Uh, to the gospel. Purify us for your work and accomplish it through us. For we wish to see many come to faith. We wish to see many saved. We wish to see many worship you. We wish to see many moved from death to life, from darkness to light, to know the great truth of Jesus Christ and the hope of his coming. Lord, that you are removing from this earth all sin and difficulty, all injustice, Lord, and you are making all things new. So let us join you in this great work and rejoice in doing so. We thank you and we praise you for bringing us together, uh, either through video or in person or however you've done it. We praise you for it, for you are doing your work of your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And I encourage you, please contact us. If you have any concerns or questions, if you want to follow up about some of this teaching, if uh, if I haven't made something clear, which is very possible and likely, uh, because I am but a man, uh, I pray you contact us, reach out to us, and we can help you with these things. We can even help you find a church in your area that faithfully preaches the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can connect you with people that can help you in your journey as Paul was helped on his. So until next time, God bless you, and may he keep you, and may he guide you in all your ways.